Hey y'all, it's Ashes, and welcome back to another episode of Simply Put. This is my first episode back after the birth of my son last month, and I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. I was open about the issues that I had during this pregnancy, and I've been open and honest about my last pregnancy and how it resulted in a very long labor and an emergency C-section, and how it left both myself and my daughter in danger because no one was willing to listen. I have known that black people in labor have the highest death rate in this country since I was pregnant the first time in 2016. And even though I lost that pregnancy, I was so, so afraid of labor that that was one of the first things that I looked up. And since I had never just wanted to be a mom, I didn't necessarily not want to be a mom either, but the idea of being pregnant didn't bother me. The the idea of what it takes to become no longer pregnant at the end of a pregnancy uh, terrified the shit out of me. And then, uh, I mean, I've had two very complicated labors that were both really scary for very different reasons. And it turns out that my original fear of labor, uh, completely valid, not for any of the reasons that I thought that it was, but definitely something that's scary and something that people don't talk about as much because everybody's like, oh, you know, you forget about it. I have not forgotten. I will not forget. Uh, And I will be honest with anybody who tries to talk to me about it because it's important that people know what they're getting into when they decide that they're going to keep a pregnancy or when they they realize that they want to be a parent and they want to be a mom. It's more than just oh, well, I wanted to have 12 kids, and then I had one, and I decided I only want three. Being able to be open and honest about what those complications are, and understanding that pregnancy and labor and delivery are both very dangerous things. They are dangerous. They are deadly. They are not to be entered into all willy-nilly, and it's really important that we're able to give informed consent, and you can't give informed consent if nobody wants to inform you about things. Although, I guess maybe that doesn't matter in the United States anymore. But I did talk about losing that pregnancy. I talked about how it resulted in sepsis that left my brand new husband of only a couple of months watch me basically die slowly in bed for almost an entire month before I even started to get better. And I've talked about all of the experiences in between. And despite what it may seem like, it's not actually because I like to hear myself talk or because I love trauma dumping on my unsuspecting listeners. It's because my story is similar to so many of yours. But the way that I'm treated by doctors mixed with a lack of medical knowledge, mixed with medical biases, puts me in dangerous situations that others may never even have to imagine of being in. They would never consider to be in because it doesn't happen to people who look like them, at least nearly not as often. So consider this your trigger warning. I'm going to be talking about more birth trauma, this time as a result of medical professionals being unable to work on melanated skin. But before I get into all of that, I need to be honest about some things. And one of those things is something that I kept from even my closest friends and as much as I could from my husband. Um, this this pregnancy almost killed me. Um, and I'm still not sure how to handle knowing that 
or handle understanding that. Um, but that is a very real thing. And there is a very good chance that I will have lasting damage from this pregnancy for the rest of my life. And hopefully that damage is not something that changes my quality of life in the future or my lifespan. So I was sick from the very beginning of my pregnancy, which shouldn't have surprised me. I didn't. It didn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise you. Um, but what did surprise me was I kept talking about how sick I was and how much weight I was losing. And instead of really giving me anything or offering me anything, they diagnosed me with an eating disorder. And since all of my doctors go through the same agency, so it all, it's all the same overarching overarching thing they all have their case notes available to each other I did that on purpose I picked an OB that I knew nothing about specifically because it was within the same network so that they could access files and I didn't have to talk to everybody and relay information but had anybody looked at those files they would have seen that my therapist and I were preemptively working our way through treatment for ARFID which is an eating disorder, but in my head, it's like eating disorder adjacent. It wasn't anything that I was diagnosed with, but it was something that I preemptively wanted to work through because I knew that there were going to be foods that I would not eat willingly or I would not be able to eat without being nervous that they were going to make me sick. And as I worked through my pregnancy and got further in, the amount of foods that were going to make me sick was going to grow. And I wanted to make sure that I was mentally capable of of reintroducing those foods back into my diet after I had my son. I didn't want to to be as afraid to eat those things as I was now because, well, then, um, because when everything that you put in your mouth or almost everything you put in your mouth makes you violently ill, you stop wanting to put those things in your mouth. But if, if they would have looked, they would have seen that. And I, I was honest about that with my therapist. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was like, hey, I want to switch around my treatment goals. This is something that I'm concerned about. This is something that I struggled with with my daughter. I'm assuming it's going to be the same thing and I want to get a handle on it now instead of being in a position at the end of the pregnancy where I'm struggling and I'm not able to be mentally or physically healthy enough to take care of my children. And understanding that pregnancy hormones are are awful, and those were what was keeping me from being able to eat. It wasn't the foods themselves. So thankfully, my therapist um, had an appointment with me later on the day that I was diet diagnosed and referred all of these places for eating disorder treatment. And so she emailed everybody I was referred to, and she took care of it. But that didn't stop the dietitian from calling me the following week. And I thought it was for that because he didn't mention anything else. But he told me that I'd been referred to him by my primary care physician back in October. And by this point, it's January. So, so like, I'm upset from a professional standpoint because that is an awful lot of turnaround. And if a dietitian is calling you because of any reason related to pregnancy and they wait that long to talk to you, important parts of your baby are being formed during that time. And like it rubbed me up the wrong way. As somebody who works in social services, I was displeased with that. 
but that's what I thought he was talking about. It turns out he called to talk to me. Um, he, he called to talk to me about the dietary needs of someone who was having twins. I'd had two ultrasounds at that point. Uh, one was two days prior to that one, and the first one was uh, in October, sometime in October. And there was only ever one baby, right? There was only ever one baby. So my levels had been high enough to confidently suspect twins at my proof of pregnancy appointment at the doctor's office. But by the time I got to my first OB appointment at seven, eight weeks, there was just one. So had something happened to that or had it always been been wrong? And, and no one had mentioned it before and I was too afraid to ask, but it never stopped messing with my head. And and so I gave him plenty of opportunities to, to back out and say he'd mix me up with someone else. But he doubled and then tripled down that I was having twins. I am not the same person that I was before that, at least not not quite. Because I looked it up and and twins run in families, but they they technically run on the maternal line. But twins run in my family on my mom's side specifically my grandmother's siblings. Two of them had twins. So my mom's first cousins, uh, some of them are twins, and one of them is her biological aunt, and one of them is her biological uncle. It could have been twins. And, and due to COVID restrictions and honestly fear of, of going back in, and having to ask that question or wanting to ask that question. I didn't see my OB again from the beginning of January when we had our anatomy scan until the end of April, which shot me straight into weekly non-stress tests for failure to receive proper prenatal care. But I didn't find out that that was why I was going until much later. So I got there and everything was fine until all of a sudden, all of a sudden it wasn't. Like the baby moved just right, and I started projectile vomiting bile everywhere. And once that started, both his and my heart rate skyrocketed. Mine went up from the high 70s, low 80s into the 130s, and his went from 140s up to 215. And then they both stayed there. And there's something called acceleration in heartbeats when talking about babies, what they thought was originally just a normal acceleration because his heart rate stayed high and because my heart rate stayed high, they ended up sending me over to labor and delivery to be monitored. But the nurse, whose name is Ashley, was fantastic and is 100% of the reason for my switch to their office for my postnatal care. During this time, she started asking me, like, if I was sick, like, if this happened often. And the look on her face when I told her that I'd never stopped getting sick and that I dropped 50 pounds so far. And at this time, I was 36 weeks pregnant. I found out I was pregnant at six weeks pregnant. Um, so I've had some time, some time being sick. I told her they had given me some meds, but none of the meds worked. And then eventually they gave me an eating disorder diagnosis and just kind of left it at that and stopped 
talking about the fact that I couldn't keep anything down. They pushed that off to other medical professionals and never addressed it again. So the OB who works at the place that the NSTs were done came and told me they were sending me to labor and delivery and asked who I was seeing in the other practice. The answer is no one specifically. There were tons of people in the practice. There are tons of locations in the practice and they all kind of switch around. So I hadn't seen anybody more than once since then. I am assuming that she made a phone call because after that, I saw like the boss doctor for that office for every single appointment until the end of my pregnancy and also for my follow-up. She was the one who did my follow-up. But it was while I was in labor and delivery that I started having my first set of really hardcore muscle spasms in my hips. I tried to move and I couldn't move and I was in a lot of pain and the pain I was used to. But what I wasn't used to is not being able to move my thighs. I couldn't bend my knees, I couldn't slide my my legs over, I couldn't use those muscles at all, but I could bend my feet, I could bend my toes, and I could bend my ankles. And um, after some more tests, they found out that I had pulled a tendon loose at some point in one of my hips, and so they gave me a prescription for muscle relaxers that I could never take because I took them once and it knocked me out for 16 hours, and that just doesn't work with my lifestyle. I was given those and then I was released in perfect health after some blood work, except I looked at the results of my blood work and my blood work doesn't show perfect health. When I logged in, they actually showed that several factors were well below the desired range and not just like, oh, this is just a couple percentage points off. The numbers for my liver and kidney function uh, were both half of the value that they should have been. I was also, like, incredibly deficient in almost everything, but that didn't surprise me. I've always been anemic, and I couldn't keep anything down uh, for days at a time. So me being deficient in vitamins and minerals, not at all surprised. But the next week's NST went fine, and I was so excited. I was like, yes, like, things are finally looking up. I had a really good week. I was able to eat probably, like, one meal a day and not and not get sick. But the next day was my OB appointment. I had a student who was there for vitals and who was going to do the heartbeat. And then my doctor was going to come in and they were going to do the rest of it together. So I was lying down getting ready to hear Remy's heartbeat and I felt myself slipping. And it was the same way that I'd been describing to to that office since my first trimester that I would feel. But since it didn't happen in the office and I wasn't very good at describing it, there wasn't really anything that I could do. So when they asked me, oh, what does it feel like? I'm like, oh, you know, when you've had a really, really long day and you just collapse into bed and it's like the most comfortable position, no matter what the position is, the position is almost always awful. And your entire body just melts into whatever you're in. And they're like, no, I don't know what that is. And I was like, oh, well, I have to be really careful when I'm getting into bed or I'm sitting down that I'm immediately positioning my body in the position that I'm, I want to be in for long term because my body is going to melt into that and I'm not going to be able to move for quite some time. And they looked at me like I was nuts. So I went from laughing and making jokes and then waking up after what turned out to be several sternum 
massages, which are awful. Zero out of 10, do not recommend. They're rubbing your sternum really, really hard with knuckles to try to cause the brain pain. But that earned me a ride in the ambulance to the nearest ER for tachycardia, more IVs, and more blood tests. So at this point, it's been eight days since my last set of blood tests. Once I was at the ER, they also did preliminary testing for POT, 20-minute fetal monitoring to decide whether I needed to go to labor and delivery. I didn't. And eventually, a prescription for Benadryl for nausea that I didn't have. So I never even bothered to fill that prescription. But what I did have was labs that showed that my liver and kidney values were half of what they were the week before. So something that was supposed to be at minimum the number 13 and then whatever whatever label afterwards that the week prior had been eight is now currently a four. And the other ones were the same as far as being reduced by half again. But I remember that one specifically because that one is for kidney usage and how well your bile is being filtered from your kidneys. And that's something that I have to pay attention to as somebody who um, only has one kidney that works properly. I was also severely dehydrated. Keeping in mind Severely dehydrated for me is very different because of kidney function than for other people. I was still drinking upwards of a gallon of water a day, but I was also in serious need of protein and electrolytes and severely malnourished. Once again, I wasn't surprised by that. Baby was fine, so I guess that's all they care about because these blood tests were not fine. Uh, These numbers were not good. They were definitely not perfect perfect and I couldn't understand why anyone was concerned and also my white blood cell count was was heavily elevated Uh, so it seemed like I had an infection somewhere but no one seemed to care about that it turned out I had a really bad yeast infection and they didn't find that out until they were putting putting a catheter in right before my c-section weeks later but the next couple of weeks weren't without issue either but they were without issues at the doctor's So I was struggling. I was crying almost every night about what would happen if this organ issue became organ damage and and what if it's irreversible and my spouse was spending the nights in my daughter's room because she was having nightmares. And so I was alone most nights and I was having nightmares of my own and I I was scared that I wouldn't be able to meet my son, let alone stay around for long enough to see him grow up. And and I'd been feeling that way since since I found out I was pregnant. So this idea that we're almost here towards the end and things are going incredibly wrong and nobody is paying attention to, to my health. They're paying attention to baby's health, which 100% is should have come first. But I am also their patient. And those numbers were really scarily bad. But at the end of the day, like, what, is that, what does any of that have to do with race? Nothing. However... Sending me for weekly NSTs and writing in my paperwork, it's because I had lack of proper prenatal care on top of me still being so sick. Could have warranted a CPS check-in at the hospital when Remy was born. Keeping in mind, the place that I go is not Fuji Obi's office. Like, nobody who goes there has, like, shit tons of extra money. They're not capable of of pulling strings and making things happen and hiring a whole bunch of help. I'm not saying that everybody who goes there is poor. I'm saying that the people who go there often don't have the support and the resources that they need in order to abide by this idea that because of COVID restrictions, you are the only person to go to your appointments. I couldn't bring my daughter, so I couldn't go. 
and I had to cancel appointments because I didn't have a babysitter or because my partner didn't get home in time or any reason, like she's sick or whatever. I'm still a parent outside of also being pregnant. I'm already a parent to a tiny human who's not in school. And I didn't have the support system back then to be able to make it to those appointments. I just didn't. I didn't have anybody to watch her. And if you're not going to let me take her, what do you expect me to do? So when I called and I canceled those appointments, I always said, I don't have anybody to watch my daughter. And never once did they offer to have me come in anyway. However, the first thing that anybody did when I went back for my appointment at 36 weeks was tell me that I should have tried harder to get them to to let me come there with my daughter and that I should have pushed or brought her anyway because once I was here, they wouldn't turn me away. Once I had pushed through a boundary that I was made well aware of in the middle of a global pandemic made by a doctor's office where we're all low-key considered immunocompromised, um, low-key considered disabled, why would I do that? Why would I do that? And I've worked closely with CPS in the past. Like, I have friends who currently work there, but CPS is to Black women as the prison system is to Black men. So once you're in, you never really get out. Okay, so I've talked about this long, and it's been almost a half hour now, and I still haven't filled anybody in on medical professionals needing to practice on melanated skin. So besides different diseases presenting different, differently on melanated bodies, which Joel Brevel, J-O-E-L-B-R-E-V-E-L-L, has talked about it on TikTok. He has been interviewed numerous times by places like CNN about how he has brought awareness to to the differences in skin conditions on melanated skin and pushing for illustrations of melanated skin so that they have they have reference points to look at. But on top of those things, what's relevant to me here is vein. So I had surgery back when I was 12, which isn't relevant, but the nurse at the time told me that my skin was too dark for her to find my veins to place an IV. So when I had my daughter, they blew three veins before they called in someone from PEDS to try because my skin was supposedly too thick, uh, which is one of those racist medical teachings that's still around from back when when they dehumanized black women for medical experiments. Not saying that they stopped, but like back when that was more common and nobody was ashamed of it. And then when I went to labor and delivery that day, they needed a, and by that day, I mean like a couple weeks before I went into labor, um, they needed a UV light to find a vein after they blew two in my hand. And by they, I mean three different nurses. And they finally settled on one on the top of my forearm, which is still bruised now four weeks later. But it's also become my favorite site. It was painful as hell when they put it in, but it was also really comfortable once it was in and it didn't get in the way too much. Then they said that my veins were small and ran crooked. So now let's talk about the day that Remy was extracted, aka the day of the C-section from hell. So I was an anxious mess from the time I got there. My last C-section had been really traumatic and the nurse clocked it as soon as I started shaking and crying. Uh, just by standing on the scale, and I wasn't even looking at what the weight was. I was looking at her, and she looked at me, and she's like, "You've you've had an emergency C-section, 
haven't you? And I was like, yep. She goes, don't worry, this will be better. You just get to relax. Your body doesn't have to work as hard. And I was like, yeah, I know. Uh, But needles in my spine are scary. And being awake while my insides become outsides is something that I'm not really, that I'm not really excited for. And I spent hours in labor trying to avoid last time. And she kept saying, it'll be fine. And it turns out it, it wasn't. Following is a list of people it took to get an IV placed before surgery with the UV light. One student nurse, three RNs, one anesthesiologist, one really great nurse they called from another floor, and honestly, a partridge in a pear tree. I know I'm missing somebody, cannot remember who it is. They tried in the following places. Three different sites on the top of my left hand, one spot on the top of my right hand, each of my inner elbows, the top of my forearm, and the pad of my hand, twice. They blew three sites in my hands, each of my inner elbows and my forearm. The vein they were going for in my right hand was missed by so much that it didn't bleed when they took it out, and the site that they found on my left hand that I went into surgery with was one they had already used and blown. They just moved further up on the vein, and they realized that the vein went in a completely different direction than the nurse tried to put it in in the first place, and that's why it didn't work. But everybody on my team knew that it would need to be replaced while I was in recovery and would not stand to be a long-term site. It didn't make it to recovery. I remember them pulling him out. I remember hearing him cry. I was looking over at him and my husband and the two nurses over at the scale. And next thing you know, my hand was on fire. And I screamed. I didn't scream. Like, I did, like, a startled scream. And the anesthesiologist announced that my vein had blown. It blew as she was trying to pump me with pain and anti-nausea medicine right after they pulled them out. It was in preparation for them to jump up and down to get my placenta out, which I don't remember from before, but that was gross. Like, I knew that it happened, but I didn't remember somebody actually being on the table with me. So they, they were trying to get my placenta out, put all my organs back in, and then and then sew me up. So it turns out that all of that is really fucking painful, nauseating, and watching two anesthesiologists, a small handful of nurses, a student, two students, two students, and eventually the um, OBs performing the operation start to visibly and audibly panic when they can't find a usable vein while you're not only naked, but filleted open with your organs in a bowl is terrifying. And they tried all the spots again, and they even tried in between the bones in both of my wrists, and that was fucking awful. But they couldn't find anything usable, so they started talking about running a pick line. And then she started trying to look for um, veins in my neck for placement, and I begged them to try anywhere else while I'm trying not to vomit and gagging with every jump that this woman is doing. And my blood pressure dropped. And they made the decision to give me a shot of adrenaline in my thigh because, quote, it's still going to be numb. And that was, that was promising. That was a promising statement. That helped me so much. 
But the doctor heard this finally, realized that maybe I should ask why why my patient is moving and making the noises that she's making. The anesthesiologist told him that I was making those noises because I could feel it. The vein had blown and I didn't have any pain medicine and they needed to make sure that I had pain medicine or they couldn't finish the procedure with me being numb. And I heard that and I don't really know what happened next because they gave me a sedative and called in an ultrasound tech to find and place an IV. And because they had just given me adrenaline and they gave me a sedative uh, right after, I was just really, I was really high. I wasn't falling asleep, but I also was just at the, my blood pressure has returned to normal state. I wasn't in the um, high level of panic state that a shot of adrenaline would have given me in that situation since I was already about to work myself up into a panic attack because I can't see my son and my husband can't be near me and everything is awful and this is why I didn't want to do it in the first place and this is why I wanted to try a VBAC but I also knew that a plan c-section was healthier for me and easier for me and easier for my husband to make sure that he has time off work. So that's what I did. They were able to place the IV, and when I got into the recovery room, they made the decision that even if another nurse could find another spot, we needed to keep that spot open just in case. So a night nurse came in and saw where the IV was placed and decided that she was going to place another one, and she did, and she did it basically without problems. Um, it took her a long time to find one that she felt confident in using, but when she found the one that she found confident in, she only had to poke me once, and that was it. It was in and successful and working, but it was still another 24 hours before a doctor removed the other one, saying that it needed to like have proven itself as being stable before they could remove the other one. So I had two for a while, and that was really confusing to my nurses. And and don't get me wrong, like, when I say veins, I'm sure that my veins were completely shot by the time I got anywhere, especially by the time I got through recovery and into my postnatal room. But I've had plenty of blood work and IVs in the past. Like, why is it that every time I run into issues with my veins, it's it's in hospitals before surgeries or in labor and delivery. And even my dentist put me under with an IV solution and had no issues at all. A dentist. So why are none of the reasons overlapping? If the problem really is my veins, why is it sometimes it's my thick skin? Sometimes it's my veins are tiny and sometimes it's my veins moving. Sometimes it's the sky's blue, but none of them are the same. Why did I have to go through all of that? Oh, and, and if you've read my Roe versus Wade post where I talked about signing the sterilization paperwork, that also didn't happen. Um, and that didn't happen for a lot of reasons, but the most important reason is they barely had time to do what they did. If they would have gone on any longer, I probably would have panicked my way into a heart attack. My body was already screaming that it was done. Uh, once my blood pressure dropped and... And I felt myself start to, like, let go to to pass out, I'm assuming, to pass out. Um, I got really scared. 
I started to panic even more than I was already panicking. I was trying to keep it, I was trying to keep it together um, because the last thing anybody needs is a patient who is panicking as well. But that was a really scary experience and hearing them say, we're going to have to give her a shot of adrenaline because if we give her a shot in her thigh, we know she won't be able to feel it was really hard to hear when you are in an incredibly vulnerable situation. And I have been in a lot of vulnerable situations. I've had a lot of terrible things happen to me, but I cannot think of any position more vulnerable than being cut open, having your organs, some of your organs in a bowl on your chest and having an arm strapped to strapped to a board to keep it out straight and then hearing all of that in front of a room full of people I could not have mentally or physically done that for any longer when the med student was putting in her last couple stitches I was counting heartbeats. I was trying to swallow bile. I was holding on to a washcloth so that I didn't get my fingernails stuck in my hand. I could not have done any more. I couldn't. If that would have gone any longer, I I don't want to say I would have given up, but my body couldn't continue to go through that all because of tiny little veins, supposedly tiny little veins that are also somehow super deep and and squiggly and movable and my skin's too thick. But no phlebotomist has ever had a problem finding my veins. Ever. I have never had one complaint. I have never had one blood draw that they've needed more than one time to poke me. No matter where that blood draw came from, people whose job it is to take blood don't have any problem finding my veins. People whose job to draw blood who come into the room because oh well blood needs to go first but we also need to set an IV so we're just going to do this and then get blood and then just leave it and the nurse can come in and and attach the IV if my veins were really all of those things how come nobody else has any problems with it why was I left looking like I got beat up you can't tell me that that wouldn't have been different if I had see-through skin, if I had lighter skin. And I know not every vein is usable for what they need to be used for, but that's an awful lot for a patient to go through because of veins. Veins no one else has a problem with.
I don't, I didn't get sterilized, but I don't, I don't think that I'm having any more children because I can't mentally go through something like that again. So that's it. That's, that's how baby Remy got here. And I want to say until next time, stay safe, but I really just want you to think about all of the times that you go to the doctor and you're not traumatized because the medical field doesn't think that you are important enough to serve properly who doesn't think that you feel pain the same way as other people, as white people. Who, who are still fighting to have representation of any sort. I want you to think about all of the things that people who look like me still die from because they're not familiar with what it looks like on their skin. Communicable diseases, fucking Lyme disease, ringworm, dermatological conditions as a whole, I would just once like to go someplace for something routine and it not turn into some sort of traumatic fucking emergency because nobody listens or because they don't know and they don't know that they don't know so they can't fix it. Or they don't think about it until they're in the moment because why would they? I don't know that I will ever know what it's like to have completely competent medical care. I don't know what it, what it will be like to be able to go somewhere for a routine procedure and actually have it go well. And I know I mentioned my wisdom teeth here, but that went well as far as I was asleep. It didn't go well in the sense of he didn't fuck it up. I don't know. Just once it would be nice to know that my skin isn't going to get me killed whether directly or indirectly. Because I very well could have died. I was going into shock and I very well could have died. And of course there's no a better place to, to go into shock at, I suppose. But it doesn't make it any better. 
So I guess until next time, be thankful that you have the privilege of competent med medical care. Even if individual doctors are incompetent or may not listen to your needs or may brush you off, understand that as a whole, the medical profession has used and abused people who look like me to make sure that people who look like you have safe medical procedures. And that's not to make you feel guilty. I hope that you feel thankful because I will never know what that's like. And I very desperately would like to.